Well, today we're going to return to our study of the New Testament book of Acts, and we're going to return to the eighth chapter where we were last weekend. The eighth chapter isn't chock full of doctrinal statements and instructions for living. It's a rather straightforward narrative about the experience of the early Jerusalem church. But if we'll read between the lines and listen for the Holy Spirit, we'll discover truths that will help us navigate life ourselves. Our text is Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Today in my title, I'm going to combine two words that we generally don't join together. Blessing and mystery. My title, The Blessing of Mystery. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, empower me for teaching. By your Spirit, empower each one of us for understanding and application. We are not here to be affirmed in our present condition. We're here to be transformed by your power. And that transformation begins with fresh understanding. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, speak clearly to us, enable us to respond with faith. And we pray that for the honor of Jesus and the welfare of broken people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together today and listen for His Holy Spirit, may the Lord be with you. One of my favorite Christian writers is Anne Lamott. And I like her writings because as a follower of Jesus, she came to the party late. She didn't start out in the church. She came to faith later in life. So she didn't grow up with a lot of churchy language. So when she writes about her experiences of Jesus, she tends to be rather candid, rather blunt, and quite frankly, refreshing. And here's an example. Quote, the first holy truth in God 101 is that men and women of true faith have always had to accept the mystery of God's identity and love and ways. I hate that, but it's the truth. Now, last weekend, we considered one of the mysteries of God, the manner in which he answers our prayers. And we noted that God's answers often bear little resemblance to our requests. And there's a good reason for that. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. He's up to more than we realize, and he's going about it differently than we would expect. So rather than answering the requests we make, God answers the requests we should have made. 
the ones that are spoken before his throne by the Holy Spirit within us who makes requests for us because he knows we don't know what we should ask for. And while it's reassuring to know God answers the prayers we should have made, it still leaves us to wrestle with something that we would just as soon avoid. Our topic today, mystery. When mystery is tucked between the covers of a novel, it can be highly entertaining. But when mystery unfolds in our lives, it's generally something we don't want to entertain. But entertain it, we must. And that's true in prayer, and as we'll see today, it's also true when we're trying to come to an understanding of God's activity in us and through us. Webster offers several definitions for the word mystery. The basic definition is something not understood or beyond understanding. But the definition of Webster I'm interested today is what he identifies as the religious definition of the word. And I like that because it aligns neatly with what God's Word tells us. Webster said, when it comes to religion, mystery is something only known by revelation and not fully understood. We can't discover it on our own. God has to reveal it to us. And even then, we aren't going to understand it completely and grasp it entirely. Now, if we dig deep in the events chronicled in chapter 8, they will yield some insights that will help us to navigate mystery and even better, appreciate mystery in our life. Because the activities recorded in Acts chapter 8 illustrate this basic fact. Jesus' followers must learn to accept mystery for what it is blessing wrapped in ambiguity. <laughs> his plans for us and his ways with us won't always be clear. And despite our natural aversion to ambiguity, it's often a very good thing because mystery invites us to rethink how we look at things. And that increases our understanding of God's ways and that increases our trust in God's heart. Now, let me say at the outset what I think you already know. It's simple to put that on a PowerPoint. It's quite another thing to embrace that thought when you don't know what God's up to in your life. All of us prefer predictability and certainty over ambiguity. We like answers better than questions. Nobody ever prays, Dear Jesus, please keep me in the dark. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I want to be out of the loop. I don't want to know what's going on. Jesus, I love being clueless. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> no, we don't pray that way. When mystery unfolds in our life, we have a hard time seeing it as a blessing. We tend to put a negative spin to it. We allow it to erode our confidence in God and weaken our conviction of his concern for us. 
we see it as proof that God is distant or he's disinterested or worse, that he's displeased. We see it as proof that God has found us to be thick-headed, stiff-necked, spiritually deaf and hard-hearted. We see it as evidence that we've somehow grieved the Holy Spirit and so we aren't able to understand what God's saying to us. We see it as proof that we've somehow lost our way and God isn't speaking to us. And once again, that's where the experience of Jesus' earliest followers in Jerusalem can help us. You see, just like us, those people wanted to know God's will. Jesus had left them with a world-sized assignment. And they didn't want to fail him. And they didn't want to disappoint him. They wanted to carry out Jesus' assignment. They wanted to be faithful. But faithfulness requires directions and instructions. How can you be true to God's will if you don't know what God's up to? How can you follow instructions you haven't received? They needed to know the part that they were to play. They needed to know who's supposed to lead and who's supposed to follow. They needed to know where to begin and how to begin and how to continue. They wanted some advance notice of what was ahead so they weren't caught by surprise. They were zealous for the will of God. But they were smart enough to know that zeal, enthusiasm, without clear instructions, is just a runaway horse. Making good time, but with no idea of where it's going. Now, in light of their obvious commitment to Jesus, in light of their devotion, you would assume God would make his instructions abundantly clear that he would spell everything out for them in precise detail. But he didn't. Instead, he allowed a series of events to unfold that must have confused them, that seemed contradictory to everything he had revealed to them. And I'm certain there were times when they got up in the morning and said, nothing's clear. We don't know what God's up to. Jesus' prior teaching offered them some clues, but clues aren't conclusions. Now, a case in point was something we looked at last weekend, the persecution following Stephen's murder. I think it's safe to say the apostles didn't anticipate that persecution would be God's strategy for moving the church out in worldwide mission. But as the church quickly learned, God often advances his agendas in ways we struggle to understand and ways that we can barely comprehend. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. From our point of view, they're often mysterious. Speaking of those apostles, after Pentecost... I'm sure they assumed that they would be the initial leaders of God's worldwide mission. After all, they were the first to follow Jesus. They had been hand-picked. They had been patiently prepared. They had been methodically mentored by Jesus himself for over 
three years. They were the first ones commissioned to take the gospel to all of creation. But mysteriously, they were not the first to actually do that. Because when the church was scattered, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why they stayed in Jerusalem, perhaps out of loyalty to the original church, perhaps because as Hebrew followers of Jesus, they weren't being persecuted. But whatever the reason, the men who had led the church from its inception didn't lead its major mission. Instead, God used a little-known Hellenist Jew by the name of Philip, a rather anonymous disciple named Barnabas, a whole host of disciples who remain unnamed, and eventually Saul, who at that time was the chief persecutor of the church. Now, nobody could have seen that coming. Nobody would have planned that. Why did God do it that way? Well, it was all a mystery. But there was a blessing tucked inside the mystery. Because it taught the church early on something that they needed to know for the future. It taught them that God's work is often advanced by the least likely people. And it's his way of reminding us that he's the one doing the work. And God likes to remind us of that because we tend to forget it. I like to think I'm a prime example of that. Thirty-three plus years ago, when God made it clear he wanted me to come to this congregation, I had zero training in urban ministry and zero cross-cultural experience. I grew up in Butler. And when I was growing up in Butler, everybody looked like me. And I didn't have to think about multicultural and various ethnicities because everybody in Butler looked like me. Butler was boring. <laughs> and I felt from the outset, God's going to do something. He promised me that. But he selected me to make it sure that we would never forget that he's the one doing it. And I'm very happy with that. That's a great place to live. God often uses the least likely people. That's why churches that fall into the trap of looking for the right people are taking the wrong approach. And churches that open their doors to everyone and don't eliminate anybody from potential leadership are the ones most likely to enjoy the blessing of God. God's mysterious choice of workers also reminds us of another important truth. Mystery can be God's way of alerting us to the fact that someone else will be doing what we thought we would do. It can serve as a mid-course correction. If you love Jesus and you see need and you feel God's positioned you to meet that need, you can assume God wants you to meet that need. But that can be a wrong assumption. God's got a big workforce. 
and he divvies up our assignments according to his perfect will. And the fact that I could do something doesn't mean I should do something. So if you have embraced the idea, I should be doing something about that, but you're not hearing from God, nothing's opening up to you, you're not getting any instructions, and it's mysterious, maybe it's God's way of saying, that's not for you, and that's okay. It's for somebody else. Well, in the aftermath of the persecution, we know that Philip went to the Samaritans, the hated cousins, because they had compromised. And I'm sure to many of the Jews in Jerusalem, that was yet another mystery. The Samaritans? The Samaritans? But like previous mysteries, it had a lesson tucked inside of it. Mystery is often God's way of alerting us we need to embrace a new thing. And going to Samaritans was indeed a new thing. Now, all of us struggle with change. We like to think that we're open to change, but we aren't really. Because when things change, and we have to learn a new way of doing things, all of our expertise in the old way of doing things basically gets taken to the curb. And we have to go back to square one. And we don't like going back to square one. It feels like loss. That's why I'd like to suggest many times past success can be the greatest barrier to future success. And historically, churches have tended to lock into the this is how we've always done it thinking. But that won't serve us well when we're following God. I like what C.S. Lewis said when he observed, quote, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing yet had been done. Mystery drives us back to relying on God, not relying on what we've been doing for God for years and years and years. Now, the new thing God intended in Samaria was well worth the mystery that preceded it. As Philip shared the message of Jesus, vast numbers of Samaritans were delivered and converted, and it produced contagious joy. It was a powerful move of God. And it was yet another reminder that God's mysteries are often solved when we land on the other side of them. When we get on the back side of the mystery, ah, then it becomes clear what God was up to. It's like looking at the back of a tapestry. Have you ever looked at the back side of a tapestry? It's just a mass of colored threads with no rhyme and no reason. Then you walk around and look at the front and, aha, now I see what it's about. And that's the case with the mysteries of God. It's not until we get on the other side that things become clear. You know, Acts chapter 21 tells us that years after the events recorded in chapter 8, Paul, during one of his missionary journeys, stopped in the city of Caesarea. And there we read, he stayed in the house of Philip. That was the same Philip mentioned in chapter 8, the same 
Philip, who was driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution instigated by Paul before he was converted. Now, I would love to have been a bug on the wall <laughs> for that conversation. As they sat there with their lattes, <laughs> reviewing the events of the past few years, thinking about what Saul used to do and how it impacted Philip and how God wove all of that together with incredible results. I'm sure they were just blown away. I'm sure one light after another went on in their soul. I'm sure the tears flowed freely like those of an aller allergy sufferer this time of year in Pittsburgh. As they revisited Stephen's death and the subsequent disbursement of the church, they just had to wonder at the brilliance of their God. I imagine one of them said, you know, God is borderline genius. Because at that point, the wrapping paper of ambiguity had been removed. And what had previously been a mystery now became an empowering certainty. And they realized that God had dealt with them just like he had dealt with Abraham centuries earlier. You remember what God said to Abraham? I'm going to take you somewhere. Now follow. He didn't tell him where he was taking him. He didn't tell him how long it would take to get there. And he didn't tell him what route they were going to use. He just said, I'm taking you somewhere, trust me. I always like the statement by Warren Wearsby, as followers of Jesus, we don't live by God's explanations. We live by his promises. Not his explanations, but his promises. So as Philip and Paul sat there over lattes reflecting on the past, I'm sure they came to this recognition. That when it's seen in hindsight, mystery has a way of maturing our faith. When you're clueless as to what God is doing, and then you get on the other side and say, Oh, that's what God was doing. That has a wonderful way of maturing your faith. Because I would remind you, faith is not the recognition of things already done. <laughs> Faith is the conviction of things unseen, things that haven't yet been revealed. And mystery matures faith. Now, I've focused on mystery today because I think in the American church we're losing touch with mystery in our faith. Ours is a very pragmatic culture. We don't just smell roses. We pull the petals off and put them under a microscope and analyze them. We like to reduce everything to predictable, pragmatic formulas. We want six steps for this and eight steps towards that. And once we think we've discovered it, we offer our findings for $29.95 plus shipping and handling so that the less enlightened might also be successful. That's America. 
We like to explain everything, predict everything, dissect everything. It's called pragmatism. But God in Scripture has put us on notice. From Noah to the revelation of John, God has made it clear things won't always go as we planned. Things won't always unfold as we hoped. Things won't always develop as we anticipated, and much of the time we're not going to have any idea what God's up to or how he's going about it. But when that's the case, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with God. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It simply means the activities of our awesome God cannot be reduced to simple human formulas. The majesty of God cannot be contained between my ears or yours. We'll never be able to grasp all of who he is and all that he's up to on this side of eternity. So those who want to know him intimately, those who want to follow him faithfully, have to be willing to accept mystery. I want to leave you with a paraphrase of a quote from Martin Luther. He made this statement in regards to the Trinity. I'm going to make it in regards to mystery. Mystery is the price we pay for having a God worthy of wonder and worship. If I could figure out everything about God, why would I worship him? Because if I could figure out everything about him, obviously, he offers no more than I do. If I could contain God up here, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. The God who is worthy of worship, the God who is worthy of wonder, is a God of mystery. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So as we await his leading and expanded influence, I'm sure his commandment to us is wait and chill. That's from the Greek word. Chillos. <laughs> Just chill. I've got this. You don't need to understand everything. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. Because if you thought you knew, you'd try to help me. And there are times I don't need your help. I heard a little riddle this week. What's the difference between us and God? God doesn't think he's us. But you know the rest. We like to think we're God, yeah. Okay. So I hope that even though you hate mystery, like Anne Lamott, I hate mystery, that you'll come to see that there's a lot of blessing tucked inside of mystery. That some of God's best gifts come wrapped in the paper of ambiguity. Let's pray together. Before I close this, if you've been grappling with something that's unfolding in your life, 
Because try as you may, you can't see the fingerprints of God on it. It seems contradictory to everything God's ever told you. It seems to promise destruction rather than growth. It seems to guarantee disappointment rather than blessing. And if in the midst of that you've been doubting God or just assuming, obviously I've messed up, take a moment and say, God, help me to embrace mystery as blessing. To know that you'll never be unfaithful. And to know that your ways are not my ways. And help me to be thankful for that. Father, we like answers better than questions. But many times you leave us with questions because that's the only way we'll find the answers. When that's the case, help us to thank you for the blessing of mystery. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.